0: Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today, Zigmar Gabriel, the chairman of Atlantic Procke, which means Atlantic Bridge. And an organization devoted to cultivating transatlantic and especially German-American relations. Mr. Gabriel was vice chancellor of Germany from 2013 to 2018, as well as foreign minister during 2017 to 2018. Before that, he was the German minister for the economy and energy from 2013 to 2017. Mr. Gabriel joined the SPD, the Social Democratic Party in 1977 and studied at the University of Göttingen, where it, soon, it seems that he and I may have had a class together in 1982. Thanks so much for joining us today, Siegmar Gabriel. So I suggested in the introduction uh, that the transatl- transatlantic relationship has been the bedrock of post-World War II security. Can you say briefly whether you agree with that
1: assessment and why? First of all, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to be part of your broadcast. And uh, again, I beg your pardon for my poor English. I was too much engaged in politics when I was a young man. Uh, I should have done better by learning foreign languages. But coming to your questions, yes, of course, especially with Germans, but all the Europeans, we are trained that um, our international a relation relationship was always backed by the United States of America. After World War II, uh, the idea was that America, although some some thousand kilometers away, should become a European power. Uh, the Russians, uh, they say, should not be part of Europe, and the Germans should be under control. After two world wars, uh, the idea America in, Russians out, Germans down was. The, the, the logic of uh, the horrible situations which we created as Germans in Europe and uh, in many parts of the world. And it worked well. It worked well because Europe, for the first time since centuries, did not fall again into terrible wars. We started, accompanied by the Marshall Plan of the United States, the the recovery, the economic and social recovery of Europe. And because of the economic cooperation, which started between France and Germany, there developed um, something which we today call the European Union. And why this was nearly a wonder, imagine only a few years after the holocaust and after german tanks uh, went through all the neighbor countries the french the italians the the, the the people from luxembourg from netherlands and belgium they invited us germans to build a new europe i don't think that that was easy to explain to their citizens because we germans were known as murders and killers but the united states of america Was um, so as you can say the 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 umbrella for these uh, countries to invite the Germans um, to be secure that there will be not a new war coming out of Germany, and they needed not even one generation, less than one human lifetime, to come from Auschwitz to Strasbourg and Brussels and the European Mm -hmm. Union. In less than one generation, we came from bitter enemieship and hatreds to a peaceful and united Europe. And that was because the United States of America backed this development and, of course, took care about the European security against the Warsaw Agreement and the Soviet Union. That was the umbrella under Europe and the West Europe could develop.
0: Right. That had a pretty long and successful run, one one would have to say. Um You know, it kept wars from flaring up in Europe in the post-World War period. Uh, except with the exception of uh what happened in the sort of dismantling of, of Yugoslavia but now we have you know this Russian invasion of Ukraine and in the meantime I mean there has been a rough uh there has been a rough patch I mean it had been the case for a long time that uh, American leaders were complaining about the lack of proper you know funding from European countries from Germany in particular um over time and Donald Trump sort of made noises anyway about uh you know taking us out of nato but now this uh partnership seems to be back in many ways in uh, you know much better in a, in a much stronger way as a result of the invasion of ukraine and i wonder if you could say you know how you think the relationship currently stands and uh, you know, Joe Biden tried to, you know, get past these uh, these unpleasant uh, years in a way with with Trump, and I wonder how you'd say uh, assess the state of the relationship now.
1: As yes, I remember, because I was a member of the NATO meeting when Donald Trump uh, came in, and of course he questioned NATO, but don't forget that. Uh, immediately after he had this question to NATO, uh, there was a common uh, um, a decision of the House of Representatives and the Senate in the United States that um, every member of the House and every senator backed the NATO and said that this was would would be on the one of the pillars of the foreign policy of the United States of America. So they cornered the position of Trump in a very Tough and smart way. Uh, but of course, at the same time in Europe, we had a difficult debate. Um, remember, the, the French President Macron called NATO brain dead. Uh, and um, my explanation was that uh, we saw the end of the post World War II era, um, the, 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 the axis or the centers of gravity shifted from the Atlantic to the Indo Pacific. And it started in the United States when George W. Bush, the president of the United States, said that America is a Pacific nation. Until then, America called itself a transatlantic nation. In reality, it was always both. It was always a transatlantic and a Pacific nation. Then we had Obama with his pivot to Asia. And although he was very much... um, um, uh, or was very popular here in Europe and in Germany. Uh, he was not really interested in Germany and in Europe until his last maybe one or two years in office, and then we 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 had the development with Trump, who called Europe an enemy like China, only smaller. Um, so this shift of 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 uh, or the second Westernization of the U.S. towards the Pacific and the Indo-Pacific uh, th- that ended the you can call it the Pax Americana in our region. And I think that Ian Bremmer, the American uh, analyst and, and political publicist, he said, now we are in a G0 world, a world without order, not G7, not G20, not the United Nations, a world without order because the United States of America wants to concentrate itself on the new competition with China. And they, they, they went out there the, the presence in, in the Middle East, uh, Obama started with Syria, Biden uh, and, and, and Trump, they both of them started with a withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, um, uh, and I think Putin had the idea that this would be the right moment to step up. I mean, Russia was in Europe for hundreds of years since the time of Peter the Great. It was a European power. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it had nearly no influence of the political or economic development. It went down to a kind of big petrol station. Uh, and, And I think Putin wants to change this. He saw that there will be a new world order and there is a new rivalry about how this new world order should look like. And he didn't want to see China and the US only competing with each other. He wants to come back as a global imperial power and he wanted to start it in that the region which he calls always Eurasia uh, and the idea of invading Ukraine I think it was a consequence of this G0 world and a consequence that he thought look the United States are political divided they are in an infight between Republicans and Democrats they want to then they want to see to China, not to Russia. The Europeans were divided between East and West in financial issues in between, uh, sorry, between East and West in in, in, um, in issues for, for, for freedom of judiciary and, and freedom of press. It was divided between North and South in financial and economic issues. And he had a French president who called NATO brain dead. For him, it looked like a window of opportunity and i think that's the real reason why he tried to to to, to recolonize ukraine i mean it's a kind of re new imperialism there is a country which went to freedom and to independence and now the old colonial master russia wants to get it back in in uh, the russian empire and if you if you lis- listen to putin you, you do not hear a red army general or the or or the the pre or the successor of lenin or stalin if you listen to him you that's the voice of a so-called white general of a person who thinks in the idea of the old emperor uh, russian empire of the tsar uh, there is a person who thinks of the categories of the 19th century He's using the means and the instruments of the 20th century to become an imperialist power in the 21st century. That's what happened there, and you are right. He made a a big miscalculation. NATO is uh, united more than ever before since uh, uh, the Cold War. Uh, Putin will not have 800 kilometers borderline to NATO members after Finland and Sweden are joining NATO, by the way, because of the nuclear umbrella of the United States. Huh? That's the reason why they are joining Finland and, and Sweden, and Finland is joining NATO. Putin will have what 2,100 kilometers border to NATO. Um, uh, Europe is more united than before. And we have a United States president who again is willing uh, to to uh, to take side with with the Europeans against a foreign power. So uh, that's the state of the game. Uh, we are back in a very strong um, alliance. But to be honest, of course, there are many um, European leaders and politicians uh, who are afraid what m- maybe would happen if a guy like Trump would. Be- become again president of the United States. And I remember very well the G7 meeting when I was secretary of state in Germany. The United States uh, foreign minister said to us, we should... um, uh, eradicate the issue of Ukraine out of our agenda because this was, would be not something where the United States is interesting in and Japan not, also not, so it's purely European issue. We asked him, do you really think that's the case? And his answer was not, that's not my opinion, but I wanted to know, you, I wanted to let you know how my president thinks about that. So there is a certain fear that uh Maybe Joe Biden is the last United States president who knows that the real multiplier of force for the United States is the capability to form alliances. That was always the difference between the Soviet Union, China, Russia and the United States. Only the United States were able to form alliances and to multiply its own forces through alliances. And I hope that. Also in the 21st century, the United States will always remember that building alone is not only dangerous for Europe, it's dangerous also for the United States. Right. So, I mean,
0: this brings us into the, you know, question of the sort of further uh, pursuance of the Ukraine war and... You know, I'm struck by the fact that there are a lot of people obviously concerned about the energy situation, what's going to happen in Europe this winter as cold descends. Uh, and also what's going to happen on the ground in Ukraine. And I'm struck by the fact that there have been in the last week or two uh, statements by, for example, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley suggesting that, you know, Ukraine's success on the battlefield should be taken now as an opportunity to start to to pursue some kind of uh, negotiations about bringing this to an end. And uh, the distinguished and influential commentator Charles has made similar kinds of suggestions about, you know, the fact that the that Ukraine is, you know, reliant very heavily at least on American arms in order to, you know, pursue its interests on the battlefield, but uh that we've reached a point where maybe the United States has to take a more uh you know affirmative role in determining like what, what the next steps and what the outcome is going to be. I mean, how do you see all that?
1: developing. It's normal that countries outside of Ukraine are thinking about, are there any windows of opportunity to stop the war, to come to a ceasefire or settlement or something like this? I would say that's normal because we see that this war is not only affecting Europe and Ukraine. Of course, Ukraine has to pay A much higher price than anybody else on earth. But we saw during the G20 meeting that other parts of the world, which you can call the global south, that they are facing famine, that they are facing skyrocketing energy prices. And uh, if wealthy countries like Germany have difficulties with the energy prices, I mean, imagine how difficult it is for countries which are much, much poorer. So, of course, there are many. Statesmen and and, and and politicians who think, is there any opportunity? But I mean, it's impossible to come to an agreement uh, uh, by saying to the Ukrainians, please do us the favor. Uh, forget maybe twenty percent of your of your territory. Uh, stop the war by giving twenty percent of your territory to the Russians. That's impossible. That's that's. Uh, but b- by the way, you 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 don't get any guarantee. Therefore, that the Russians really would stop the war. Maybe they will only reorganize themselves and then try to invade Ukraine again in two years. So, uh, the first thing what we should discuss what's our security guarantee for Ukraine uh, and of course we have to support Ukraine as long uh, as as Russia tries uh, to 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 fight against this country uh, I don't think that um, it, we will be anytime soon in the situation to to really have a ceasefire and the main reason therefore is that nobody has an idea how we can organize a guarantee that Russia will not come again. And as a European and a father of three daughters, I don't want to see Russia to get any success. Why? Because if this lesson would be learned, that you can intervene and 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 can... Uh, a girl with tanks uh, in the territory of your neighbor country, then Europe will again be a very dangerous place. And then my kids and grandkids will grow up in a very dangerous Europe again. So that's the reason why I think we have to support Ukraine uh, as long as it's necessary. Uh, and as long as we do not have the guarantee that the Russians will never try it again. Right.
0: So as far as the broader uh, transatlantic relationship, I mean, you sort of indicated a couple minutes ago the uh, problem that many European leaders are concerned about, you know, the return of a Trump like figure after Joe Biden. Uh, perhaps loses in the next election or in any case, whenever he leaves office. Um, And I wonder if you could talk about, you know, I would say you and I grew up in a period in which this transatlantic relationship was, you know, not taken for granted necessarily, but was widely accepted as a kind of, uh, you know, successful arrangement for uh post-war security and you know the idea that there should be organizations like the atlantic poker um you know was something that was kind of that went without saying in a certain sense and i wonder you know now that that post-war era has moved on in many ways and and has been around for a long time it's not necessarily clear that people who were you know our age when you and I may have first met uh see it that way and maybe they're you know they they have may have made a pivot to Asia so to speak in their own minds so I wonder what you would say about what still kind of keeps this relationship together or what you know may drive it apart
1: I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, um, I mean, first of all, whoever will be the next president of the United States, uh, your country will look more to the Indo Pacific because of economic and geopolitical reasons. That's, I would say, that's normal. I hope, hopefully, we will find a solution by uh, in the, in the, by, by having um, crisis management with China. Um, it's interesting what Australia and others are asking for. They, they, by the way, they are going back to the old Cold War and say what's necessary in the indo Pacific are instruments which we develop between the west and the east and the old cold war because we should prevent ourselves for unintended conflicts uh, in the in the in the time of cyber and misinformation that's a new dangerous development but th- th- these kind of second westernization of the united states will happen uh, whoever is the next president and so for europe is the question what can we do to um, play a more responsible role in the transatlantic partnership when Joe Biden came in office he made a famous speech in the Munich security conference and he said America is back and I would say there is there was a kind of misunderstanding here in Europe that the traditional role of the United States of America is back and it's, it doesn't uh, America is back as a uh, uh, and so far, that they would say, we are we are again willing to lead the Western democracies, yes, but not by our own, not by to not put every burden on our shoulders and for good reasons the united states accepted for many decades that they have to pay 70% of the defense budget for european security because they they didn't knew at that time what would happen if the europeans would have their own military capabilities maybe they will go will go back and war against each other again. But this time is over since two or three decades. And it was not only Trump who asked the Germans, especially the Germans, but not only the Germans, to invest more. Uh, uh, And it's unfair. Both economies, the European and and the United States, they are equal, strong economies. And there is no reason for paying 70 percent of the defense burden by the United States. So we have to be much more responsible. And of course, we also have to debate what can we do to support, by the way, the, 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 the engagement of the United States uh, for freedom of navigation uh, in the South China Sea, for example. So the, the new transatlantic partnership will be different to the old one. Uh, and the European Union was trade not to be a geopolitical actor because when countries like Germany were geopolitical actors, it it led always to a catastrophe for the world. So after 1945, the idea was the Europeans should deal on economics and and on the internal development, but for international um, uh, geopolitical issues, we have the United States and a bit the Brits and the French as members of the Security Council. But in reality, we projected our international security uh, on American aircraft carriers, and this will be th- 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 this will not have happen again. Uh, uh, after the war in Ukraine will end, uh, Europe will will have to take a much bigger role, and not only on the military side. For example, the Europeans are negotiating since 20 years. With Mercosur, so the the South American market for a free trade agreement, we do not accept the proposals. Why? Uh, because the the uh, the the Southern Americans and the Latin Americans are not able to fulfil the 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 ecological and social standards of the European Union very fast. That's understandable because they, they are they are not as rich as we are. So. The, the, the Europeans are sometimes very so they, 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 their ambitions are very high. what happens now is that China comes along and of course they they, they told the the, the 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 guys in Argentina look if the Europeans don't want to interact with you we are willing to do that. So we have to be much more pragmatic and we have to step up our international engagement and and we can't wait until the United States of America is always solving our problems. And, and uh, that's, I would say, the most important lesson. Uh, and uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a pity that we only learned this lesson by a war in Ukraine. We should have learned it before.
0: Yes, perhaps, but we grow too too late smart, uh, that tends to happen in life. But
1: yeah, uh, I asked, I asked uh, the American Secretary of State Tillerson asked me, why it's so difficult to convince the Germans to use military power, and I said, look, because you were so successful, you tried to make us peaceniks, and you did. Uh, so that, that's that's. I would say, the explanation why we are like we are.
0: Sure. So you've mentioned uh, China, and I guess uh, I want to ask you perhaps as one last question. Um, I mean, is China likely to be a source of kind of division in the transatlantic relationship? I mean, I think there are ways in which it seems clear that the Europeans are prepared to sort of work with China, shall we say, or allow parts of its territory even to be... Um, you know, taken over by the Chinese ports and things. Uh, You know, the United States seems more to be taking a a somewhat more competitive posture, let's say. And so I wonder, you know, how you see that uh, relation, those relationships playing out and how they'll affect the transatlantic relationship.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, uh, Germany, for example, economic system depends on exports 50% of the of the of the gdp of germany comes from export uh, we are exporting services and goods and industrial products to the rest of the world by the way the vast majority more than 40% of the european union huh? 10% to the united states and 10% to china the, the vast majority of the exports are going to the european union i think america has an export of 10% of its gdp so it's not so dependent but even in the united states if you ask the the financial market in in new york they will answer that china for them is a greenfield for investments and if you ask uh, the guys in california they are, have a much more differentiated position because they are in a tough competition in the tech sector and and and, and when it comes to artificial intelligence Uh, they are much closer to to national security. So the same is in Germany or or in Europe. China is a kind of frenemy. It's an enemy when it comes to the social system, the political system. It's a dictatorship and we are democracies, but they are an economic partner at the same time. That makes it much more difficult than with Russia. Russia, we only or the Soviet Union, we only had with the Soviet Union, the old Cold War, we had relation in the field of gas and energy, but not more. We were not, they were dependent on us, not the other way around. And now we are searching ways how to find the balance between confrontation, which we have, and when it comes to human rights, when it comes to Taiwan, when it comes to the freedom of navigation in the South China Sea and competition in the field of the economy and sometimes cooperation. How we will solve the climate issue without China or pandemics? Jake Sullivan made it clear in the National uh, um, Strategic um, uh, Review when he said, "China is on the one side uh, the only country which is able and wants to replace the United States as the major power of the world. On the other hand side, we need China." Uh, to to, uh, uh, to 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 find solutions for for global challenges like climate change. So we 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 all have uh, the 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 difficulty in front of us to find ways uh, on the one side to be resilient and not to be too dependent on, for example, raw materials which came out of China. I think the German uh, um, uh, raw earth materials that came by more than 90% from china on the other hand we need of course economic and also political cooperation with this difficult country uh, because you will not circumnavigate 1.4 billion city uh, citizens on the other hand side i mean sometimes we underestimated china today my fear is sometimes we are overestimating them they also have their challenges. First, China will become old before it becomes rich. And for the next decades, they will not be able to invest a lot of money in their new Silk Road because they will need it in their own country. Why we don't step up together with the Americans, we as Europeans, and offer to um, to other countries an alternative to the new Silk Road or to the One Belt, One Road initiative of China? We are always complaining that China has a geopolitical strategy, I think that's senseless. A, a country of 1.4 billion citizens want to be more than a, than a, than a cheap marketplace f- for their former colonial masters. Um, we should complain not to have a geopolitical strategy as, as, uh, as an alternative to China. That's what we should do. And better we do it together, the Americans and the Europeans, than to try it alone.
0: Well, thank you for that interesting insight into the likely futures or the possible futures of Europe and the United States vis a vis China, which is obviously a huge issue. But that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Zygmar Gabriel, the chairman of the Atlantic Brücke, for sharing his insights about contemporary transatlantic relations. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Agui, for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.